This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening to Broadcom shares going down, 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 suffering their biggest drop ever after the company said it will buy software maker CA Technologies for $18.9 billion. Many analysts scratching their heads over this news. Let's get into it uh, with uh, Nico Grant, enterprise technology reporter in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Also with us, Cody Acri. He is analyst at Loop Capital Markets on the phone from Dallas. Hey, Nico, let me start with you. Go over this deal news for us. What's going on and why are analysts so disappointed? Well, hello, Carol. Hey. Um, This is an unusual deal for Broadcom, which is a massive semiconductor maker. And its slate of deals over the past several years have completely transformed the semiconductor industry. Um, They're going to pay $18.9 billion in cash for this New York-based software company, CA Technologies. Um, If you've been following the tech industry for a long time, you know this company. Most of what this business does is make software for mainframes, Mm -hmm. those old 1960s, um, you know, sort of hardware technology. But we didn't need them anymore. Don't we have the cloud? (laughs) Well, here's the thing, that companies that have been around for a very long time still have these, and they process such vast amounts of data that it's very difficult to move on. And so Hmm. we've actually seen two waves since mainframes. We've seen uh, servers, and now we see the cloud. But this company, CA, is still able to make a tremendous amount um, of margin Mm -hmm. on software for mainframes, and they have recurring revenue that is going to be accretive to Broadcom because of this software. So it sounds like it kind of doesn't, it does kind of make a little bit of sense. Cody Agri, come on in on this. Uh, You've been following the tech community in this area for a long time. Uh, What do you think about the combination? Well, Carol, I think Nico's right. It is, uh, the synergies here are less than obvious. It is about 51% of their revenue that's from mainframes. And that's been in pretty steady decline since 2012. It, but it's, it's on average been only about a 3% decline annually. So it's, it's not a major headwind, but it's obviously not growing. Uh, their enterprise business is a little over 40%. And while that had been in decline from 2012 to 16, the last two years it's actually grown fairly nicely. So, You aggregate the two, you get a company that's growing uh, very low single digits, but they do have good earnings and good cash flow. So we've got Broadcom earning about $20 next year. If you add CA to this, that's about $25, $26 of earnings. So it does immediately add to to earnings. It probably doesn't add a lot to revenue synergies, but Mm -hmm. Broadcom and Hawk Tan have been very adept at bringing inefficiencies out of their acquisitions, and I think this is going to be more of the same. And that's part of it, Cody, right? You just, the connection between the two doesn't necessarily, there's nothing obvious about it. (laughs) 
Well, that's right. And uh, um, while they both serve the IT infrastructure mm-hmm. market, it's not like Broadcom is going to start selling uh, chips into the mainframe market. Uh, there may be some cross synergies among enterprise customers, uh, but even that's going to be a bit tenuous. And, and it's yet to be seen uh, what Broadcom knows about running a software company. So I think this is largely going to be uh, a separate standalone division that uh, Broadcom comes in and tries to uh, eliminate redundancies, reduce costs, but uh, probably doesn't do much to change the the real trajectory of revenue. You know, uh, Nico, did Broadcom to maybe to some extent feel a bit of pressure after not being able to go through with its deal to buy Qualcomm? Did it feel some pressure to do some kind of deal here? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you really hit on it, which is that this is in some ways a consolation prize. Um, you know, if Broadcom had been able to buy Qualcomm, it would have bolstered its place as one of the leaders in that industry. And that's something that for Broadcom investors, they were very excited about because they've seen what the company has, has been able to do uh, with other chip makers. This is a deal that the company's CFO said it has been considering for a while, but mm. in many ways it resembles a private equity play. Um, you know, sort of profit for um, the sake of profit, uh, growth in a different vertical. And I think the reason why investors are are so confused is because it seemed for a long time like Hock Tan had such a clear vision for what his company could do, right. not only sort of in, in its own context, but in the context of its industry, which it completely reshaped. Yeah, so maybe a little bit of a leap of faith. Cody, what is it that we've got to then see from Hock Tan, uh, the president and CEO of Broadcom, uh, and you know now that he's you know doing this deal with uh, CA, I mean, what do what what do investors need to see for for them to be convinced that okay, this makes some sense? Well, I think that uh, to Nico's point, he uh, he had laid out a, a prior strategy that uh, that this is a bit uh, divergent from, and so. Uh, it makes sense if you're building more into hardware or into, uh, into semiconductors, but to add software is a bit of a stretch. Uh, but at the same time, if, uh, if investors are paying for cash flows and earnings growth, uh, Broadcom was only growing earnings in the mid-single digits. And so if this allows them to grow earnings at a, a continued sustainable double-digit pace and drive free cash flows, that's really what investors pay for in the long run. They're going to have to demonstrate that and uh, show what kind of cost synergies they can ring out. But if they do, I think investors return to the stock. Hey, Nico, should we expect some more uh, deals from Broadcom? Yes, probably. I mean, the company previously said after they couldn't buy Qualcomm that they would return more money to shareholders. And we see that they're uh, taking out $18 billion in debt uh, to help fund this. It's very likely that Hock Tan is going to continue to do deals. This is, you know, this is his life. Yeah, that's what that's the model, right? Um, Nico, thank you so much. Nico Grant, enterprise technology reporter at Bloomberg News from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Cody Acri, thank you. Analyst at Loop Capital Markets joining us on the phone from Dallas. Right now, shares of Broadcom at their lows have been down as much as 19%. As we speak, the stock down 14.6%, down more than $35 to $207.85 a share. Tell me what 
to say our world is complicated is a bit of an understatement right now. In fact, we've got a story in the Bloomberg uh, Terminal today about how Wall Street banks are saying President Trump's latest trade salvos in the battle between the U.S. and China will hit growth in the world's largest economy. And economists have been running their numbers on this. Frances Donald, is, uh, she is head of macroeconomic strategy at Manulife Asset Management based in Toronto in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Thursday. Nice to have you here with us. Uh, you know, we have been talking trade, I feel like, certainly in the news media for several weeks, you know, as, as it feels like things are escalating. And everybody said, oh, it's just talk, it's just talk. But we're, but we're now starting, I think, to see CEOs, companies do things differently because of the tariffs that are being put on various items. What do you see? I completely agree. The story certainly amplified in the last couple of weeks. We saw a number of elements that take this from going from a series of inconsequential developments to something that could actually undermine the strong global macro environment that we saw. And number one is those 200 billion tariffs coming in on Chinese imports. That's big enough now to start moving the dial on growth forecasts moving forward. Who does it impact more, though? Is it China? Because... Or is it the U.S.? Who gets impacted? Well, it impacts the entire world. And one of the more complicating factors of the trade wars is that we're in an environment with very amplified, extensive supply chains. So suddenly we start saying, well, if China's not going to import as many soybeans from the United States, where are they going to bring them from? They'll probably bring them from Brazil, for example. Um, How does that affect supply chains through LATAM? It becomes very difficult to measure this. But it's not just about measuring GDP growth, which now is starting to factor in a little bit more when we get to these big numbers. But there were other major developments. The first one is that uh, the Federal Reserve in their minutes stated that they might be seeing some pullback on business investment because of the uncertainty around trade. Now, Just as it was getting started, it feels just like. As, just <laughs> as we really need that pillar of growth. That's that's a big, big turn in their, in their way of thinking about the world because it takes trade from being a hypothetical that may or may not happen right. to something that's impacting the real economy right now. Help me out, though, because I feel like business investment hasn't been happening for a long time. How important, though, can it be to economic? growth. And are you saying it's important at a time when maybe what else has been channeling the economy or propelling the economy forward is kind of going away? This is the the most important time in the cycle for business investment. This is when the consumer types to pull back at the mid to late cycle and you start to rely on business investment. We've seen tax cuts. We've started to see the seeds of development there, business confidence, very, very high. This is the moment when you should see that acceleration. And it's part of the reason why in the beginning of the year, we were getting very excited that you growth could break out of this secular stagnation idea that businesses were going to spend, mm-hmm. productivity was going to rise, the neutral rate was going to get higher. Oh, exactly. Like the the curve, glory moment. The curve was supposed to steepen. And now we have this very serious risk that the FOMC is now targeting and saying, actually, this has the ability to filter through now. I had a, there's a fascinating story and I don't have it in front of me, but it was actually talking about folks starting to think, well, Maybe it's not a rate increase we get next somewhere down the road recently or in the near future, but that we actually get a rate cut. I think we're a long... Is that crazy? Well, it's a... It's a long way from a rate cut. We'll have one eventually in the future, but it won't be right now. What right. I think we should recognize is the markets are pricing in 60% chance of four rate hikes this year. It would be very, very difficult for pricing to move more aggressive on the Fed. That's really asymmetric at this point. Do you buy it? That's going to be four rate increases, or are you in the camp that maybe it might be three? I'm still at three. I think that's a reasonable base case. But what I'm looking at in the market is that their expectations are more likely to be shifted downwards in the next three to six months than higher. That's a really asymmetric risk profile when it comes to Fed pricing. Might it be the trade tensions that ultimately push this into recession as a result? 
Um, I think we're going to see a natural end to the cycle, and we could hit what I would call a pothole recession somewhere in a, a year and a half to two years from now. I don't expect it to be particularly pronounced. Kind of a hit and run. Exactly. You could put it that way. You have to see really inflamed uh, bubble-type environments, a lot of froth in an economy to see a significant recession like we saw in You don't see that. That's not going to be what we come up against. But we do have to recognize that when we talk about protectionism, we aren't just downgrading one-year or two-year GDP forecast. This is going to lower what people's perception of potential GDP over the long run will be for the United States. Now, I will clarify, these numbers are still very low, but the trend that we're looking at is towards a lower potential GDP, all things being equal. So might all of this, though, be kind of great for the Fed because they don't then necessarily have to be so aggressive? Like, It's really fascinating to watch how the conversation has evolved over the last few months saying that, all right, because of the trade tensions and so on and so forth, that maybe this you know, gives the Fed opportunity to breathe a little bit. I think the Fed wants the opportunity to hike more quickly. I think they'd love it if they had a very overheated economy. I think they'd love to see excessive wage growth because it would allow them to normalize interest rates. Right. And I really would not underestimate how much central banks today, and not just the Federal Reserve, but uh, central banks in Australia and Canada and Europe have a quest to normalize. They are really focused on the long run and the need to get rates at least back up to neutral and in many cases just not have a negative real rate. Places like Canada and Europe just want to get to 0% real rate. They need the conditions to do that. So this actually makes their job harder, not easier. Right. Everybody's been trying to get back to normal after, yes. after what, almost 10 years? 10 years of just this really easy, easy monetary policy. And the unforeseen consequences. I think central banks know there's a lot that we can predict, but there's a lot we can't. Great talking with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Francis Donald, head of U.S. macroeconomic strategy at Manulife Asset Management, based in Toronto, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Thursday. (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) we are waiting to see who ultimately gets 21st Century Fox's entertainment assets. Both Comcast and Disney want them, and it just becomes... More entangled, uh, this uh, possible deal and, and who ultimately will win. We want to talk a little bit about the tangled world of media M&A. Back with us is Greg Portel, lead partner of consumer industries and retail practice at AT Carney in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. This is a fascinating one to watch, is it not? It, it is because it is so interdependent on every move. We, there, there's a there's a fan in all of us that likes to watch good sporting events, yes. and this is a bit like a good sporting event with the gives and takes. But it also reminds you, right? Okay, so we have Comcast. Disney has made an offer for 21st Century Fox's entertainment assets. So, too, has Comcast, right? Correct. And then you've got, what, 21st Century Fox owns Sky or Piece of Sky, Piece of Sky. right? And now you have, what, Comcast coming out today and making an offer for Sky. Sky. <laughs> um, how do you see this playing out? Well, it'll be important for them to resolve the Sky question first because right. that's such a big asset inside the 21st Century Fox portfolio. Right. And Comcast and, and Disney both want it, right? They both want it. It has advantages to both of them, both in terms of expanding the geographic footprint, but then also giving them a better pipeline to consumers. 
So, you know, it's funny. We were wondering at the Allen & Company um, at Sun Valley whether or not they were going to maybe all sit down and say, okay, you take this piece and I'll take this piece and we'll work it out. It didn't happen. Well, I, I am I am sure their lawyers are there suggesting <laughs> they not have that conversation. But it'll be some interesting dinner parties for sure. What does this um, pursuit of these entertainment assets, though, and Sky by both Disney and Comcast remind you about what's going on in the media sector? Well, from a content standpoint, the scarcity of content and proven brands. Essentially, you have media and entertainment companies becoming much more brand-focused and brand, they covet brands. Right. Because it's virtually impossible to build those billion-dollar brands. So when you have the opportunity to grab a 21st Century Fox and their proven brands, it's very appealing. And they're, you know, with Time Warner going off the market, there are very few of those stables left. That's what makes Fox so appealing. You know, it's funny, too. Um, our guys who were at Sun Valley, and I just want to pull up the ticker here, um, Discovery, I think they caught up with David Zaslov. And that stock's up almost 24% this year. And, and he said, you know, I think, you know, people are going to be taking another look at us because they have great content can, great content and established content. The, the established content. The question for anyone looking at those companies is how do they take the content and spread it across their other assets? So when you're looking at something like The Simpsons, it's very easy to see how that goes across both Comcast and Disney's portfolios. Right. When you start looking at some of the more specialized content, documentaries, some of the the, the less entertainment-centric, it becomes a much more challenging question on how to monetize that at the multiples we're talking about now. So are you anticipating, though, and I feel like the media sector in particular goes through these waves where we see a lot of movement, a lot of consolidation, then we see people selling off pieces, and then it goes around to get, you know. Do you see other companies, after finally Disney and Comcast gets resolved, um, do you see other companies that will see more activity in the, in the media space? Well, there'll definitely be activity. The question will be how much of it is balanced toward the brand side of it versus the technology side of it, because One of the forgotten and overlooked stories with Sky is they have great ad tech. So the ability to to deliver real-time advertising technology, the ability to deliver video ads inside programs on a one-to-one basis is pretty powerful. So that Sky technology is is a pretty appealing asset. Now, if you talk about the next wave, the question will be, is it? balanced toward the brands, which are becoming scarcer, mm-hmm. or the advertising technology, the ad tech that is becoming more um, more valuable. Who are the other big players when it comes to ad tech and who are doing it well? Well, that's the catch. Yeah. Most of the ad tech companies are really niche companies inside individual markets. When you look at big companies that are investing in it, Sky is one of the f- few independents that's really proven. I mean, Disney has great ad tech, so does Comcast. Right. What about some of the social media sites? Social media is is really the inventor of yeah. of ad tech. Now, whether you can take that technology that a Facebook has and apply it to mainline television, where the bulk of the money is still spent, right. is a question. Hey, you know, I looked at kind of bigger, broader numbers when it comes to um, – M&A. I think it's global M&A, according to our Bloomberg data, up about 5% from a year ago, up, though, about 18% North America, similar gains in the Asia-Pacific, down 21% in Europe. Um, when you look at the M&A space, what are you seeing right now? Overall? We actually do a study every year on M&A, particularly in the consumer and retail space. And we've predicted a jump in M&A of about 10% this year, driven by the, the need for consolidation and the grabbing of scale. So if you think about personal care companies, they're all in that 5 to $10 billion range. And then you have P&G that's massive and Unilever that's massive. So yeah. you have a lot of 
smaller assets that can get picked up. And then you also have still availability of debt, which mm-hmm. is what fuels the M&A activity. Yeah, it's interesting, the consumer brand space. I mean, there's a lot of brands that have been around for a long time, but they're finding that their portfolio ain't what it used to be, right? And so they're either selling off, getting rid of some brands, picking up newer brands that are more appealing to, to, to today's consumer base. Well, the, the challenge for consumer companies is they have traditionally defined their world by categories, and they live in categories which are silos. Well, consumers now shop on need. Mm-hmm. So, so you don't go looking for a category. And it used to be that Coke and Pepsi, for example, would fight for share of a category. Right. Well, now that category, carbonated soft drinks, is under pressure as a category. So it becomes important for CPG companies in particular to stretch beyond the category definition when they think of how to meet those consumer needs. That's what's shaping the portfolio changes. That's definitely tricky. Um, Great to check in with you. Enjoy the rest of your summer. Thank you. You too. Greg Portel. He's lead partner of Consumer Industries and Retail Practice over at AT Kearney. Joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Hitching a ride. Yeah, Venmo actually hitching a ride on Uber. Uber announcing that it is uh, adding a pay with Venmo option, becoming the largest app to adopt the payment tool. Let's get uh, more on the significance of this move. Julie Verhage is fintech reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York City, along with Eric Newcomer, start, startup reporter at Bloomberg News from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Eric, I want to start with you. I know you follow Uber really, really closely. Um, surprising mood makes move makes sense. How do you see it? I mean, from Uber's perspective, any way to get you to spend money on Uber is <laughs> good. good. You know, they've got credit cards. They'll take Apple Pay. Any way you want to give them money, they are happy to receive it. So I think for them, it's like, okay, people have money sitting in their Venmo account. People want to use it. You know, we want to be, uh, you know, millennials are certainly a huge customer base of Uber's, I think just makes sense to give them another option. Right. And this is going to come right next to, I think, Apple Pay, right? Uh, a, a kind of competing, not kind of, competing mobile payment service, right? Uh, right? So that you have a menu of options on how to pay. Exactly. <laughs> hey, Julie, come on in on this. You follow FinTech for us here mm-hmm. at Bloomberg News. Uh, what do you make of this combination? I think, like Eric said, it makes a lot of sense. So Apple Pay has been on there for a while, which made me kind of question why Pay with Venmo wasn't, you know, right on there when they launched it in October. And what they did is, you know, PayPal can take data from what customers are saying in that social feed that you'll see on Venmo. And over the past year, more than 6 million people, you know, split Uber rides via Venmo saying, you know, I took an Uber with Eric and I make a request for him on Venmo later to pay me back. This way, it's just seamless. I tag Eric in it saying he's taking it with me and it'll split the fare for me. So it's just a way to make it, you know, seamless, easy in this era where it's almost like payments just happen rather than actually even thinking about it. Right. So it's just a way for Uber to try to make that customer experience better and PayPal to, you know, leverage the Venmo brand to, you know, gain more of that payments traction. Hey, go ahead, Eric, please. I I mean, I think, you know, a key point here is that people are already using Venmo as it relates to Uber. You know, I all the time take an Uber with a friend and just sort of send them half the bills. So it's clearly and, you know, you tag it Uber. And so Venmo sees that Uber sees that. So I think when you're negotiating a deal, it's pretty easy when it's like, okay, your users are already doing this. Let's just make it easier for them. I mean, this is a bigger story, what, for Venmo, uh, Julie? Um, you know, I, from what uh, I understand in your I story. So. Yeah, like, uh, just yeah, t- yeah, talk, yeah. talk to us a little bit about, you know, the transaction growth that we've seen on Venmo. I mean, it's been slowing big time. 
Yeah, I mean, it's been slowing a little bit, which part of that makes sense in that, you know, there's only so many millennials out there, but they obviously want to keep that wait, strong wait. growth. We right? keep talking about how there are so many millennials, biggest part of our workforce, they're taking over the world. So wait a minute. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, growth has been slowing. And the big thing is there's been this push to monetize Venmo, and they haven't been able to do too much of that yet. And this is a way with the pay with Venmo at retailers and merchants and places like Uber that they can't actually make money on it. Because when I take an Uber and I just make a request to Eric later to pay me back, it's not going to give me any money. But if I'm using it in the Uber app to then split it with him, then Venmo and PayPal are making money on that transaction. Yeah, kind of cool. I mean, that that whole payment space, though, Eric, it is kind of competitive, right? There's a lot of folks out there trying to do the same thing. Right. And we don't know, you know, the terms of the deal. Uh, hard to believe Uber is going to give up sort of too much margin here. I mean, you're you're competing for volume, you know, in payments more than anything. It's how can we get as many customers using it as possible? And we'll find sort of creative ways uh, to try and make money. But I mean, like Julie said, Venmo sort of just sending money to your friend, you know, they don't make money off that, if I understand it correctly. So it's about trying to find other ways. And Maybe Uber's willing to sort of cut them, a, I don't know, a few basis points for every transaction if it makes people sort of happier with the product or more willing to pay. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, yeah, anything interesting too, Julie, about the timing of this? Um, I don't think the timing too much is interesting. One other thing I would want to point out, though, is that Braintree, which is also owned by PayPal, already mm-hmm. powers payments on Uber. So they could have just done the same exact basis point differential on there and say, like, hey, if you're paying with an Amex, you're already making this basis point on that transaction. Let's make the same when they're paying with Venmo instead. Um, it's just really a lot about just building that Venmo brand. There's a custom emoji with it now, too, so people can – there's more of that social engagement to, to bring more people on board. Who's the big player? Is it PayPal, uh, Eric, in all of this? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's – they want to build up this sort of Venmo – brand. I think the nice thing about it, which Julie sort of just pointed out, is that, you know, with the emoji, it sort of is it ends up being marketing for Uber. So perhaps hmm. it's a little bit more valuable than sort of an Apple Pay. You use it, you know, Apple loves sort of privacy. Venmo sort of betting on the fact that you want to expose sort of your payments to the world. And so for Uber, that's good. It just makes their brand sort of more prolific. So I think part of this is just, you know, it's a way to market through payments, you know. which is pretty amazing. All right, folks, thank you so much. Eric Newcomer, startup reporter at Bloomberg News from our 960 studio in San Francisco. Julie Verhage, check out her story at business. She's fintech reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York City. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. This is the drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
Time for the drive to the close. Eric Clark is portfolio manager at AccuVest Global Advisors. He manages the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund, both of which are beating just about all of its peers over the past year. Eric joins us from San Francisco. Um, nice to be back with you. I know we talked uh, at the Schwab uh, Investment Conference in Chicago. What's changed in terms of the environment uh, since then? Not so long ago, but I'm just curious. Well, I think we have uh, schizophrenia. That seems, <laughs> that seems to be in favor. You know, yesterday we have a 200 down day. This day, today we have 200 up day. I don't know about you, but it seems like things, uh, the market direction short term is driven by whether or not uh, our president uh, is available for tweeting and press conferences talking about tariffs. So, okay, and you really seek out some really well-known brands to include in your portfolio, and then you end up holding on to them for a while, right? Yeah, I mean, we we have kind of what we call core brands, which are good, you know, great companies with secular themes. But then we have some tactical opportunities, too. So we kind of look at it like, for, for instance, this year, I mean, unless you're just a pure growth manager, most everything else is really not looking so good. And so if you're if you are just buying growth, then everything looks fine, albeit a little volatile. But if you're willing to be tactical, you know, there's lots of opportunities to buy some things that are on sale after the first six months, basically being just growth, doing nothing but going up and everything else kind of going sideways or going down. So, so we've, we've, got, we've shifted the portfolio, uh-huh. you know, in June and July. You did June, July. What did you shift in? What did you shift out? Yeah, you know, all we did is just lower the growth exposure a little bit. You know, that's been a one-way train. And and because there's been so many great companies that have pulled back, we just started to get a little bit more balance. I mean, there's clearly a lot of risks out there. The market, some days the market worries about them. Some days the market ignores them. But, you know, it, it felt great to lower the growth exposure while still having a good slug of tech. And, and growth consumer discretionary, but then also get some some of the laggards, some of the the, the consumer staples and healthcare names that were just kind of thrown out, and, and you know names like Mohawk, which is the largest floor flooring company in the world, that thing's you know was down twenty six percent. Right. But last I checked, the home improvement and housing sector is still doing really well. So there's the market gave you that kind of you know some of those kinds of opportunities Amazon. and more defensive names, which feels good. Okay, Amazon though not necessarily a defensive name. That's I think your number one holding here, right? It's up fifty three percent. Have you paired back on your exposure to this one? Yeah, we we have, and you know, I listen. I, full disclosure, I love Amazon. Yeah, they, you know, they're just getting into this healthcare thing too, so they, they seem to just dominate industries. But the the reality is, we just wanted to lower our overall bet to high beta tech because there were so many opportunities in other areas. So it's it was less about my my disinterest in in Amazon and more about some other names that just I think might even have better opportunities and upside for the rest of the year, even versus an Amazon, you know, like, like what? Well, I, again, we, we still like some of the defenses. I mean, yeah. when you can, when you can pick up some dividend yield and you can pick up some defensive qualities when there's a bit of turmoil with, with tariffs. I mean, if this thing, if this rhetoric heats up even further, you know, multinationals that have lots of sales overseas, particularly in Asia and China, I have a hard time believing they're going to be uber bullish on their conference calls starting, you know, kind of this week and for the next six week in earnings. So it just feels good to get some of those defensives in there with, you know, and some interesting new plays. We, I feel like the, the biggest contrarian bet in here is Southwest Airlines, for instance. 
Everybody hates the airlines. <laughs> Terrible high end. No, we just uh, hate. We just hate. Can I just tell you? We just hate those small seats. And we had a great story <laughs> on Daybreak on the Bloomberg Terminal that just talked about how small the uh, lavatories <laughs> in the planes have gotten. They just. <laughs> but they got the captives. I know. I know. I know. But so you like. So you like Southwest. I like Southwest. I mean, they are the premier operator. You know. I, I and you know there is the conscious bet. To make uh, to have a heavy emphasis on U.S. companies with a lot of U.S. sales that weren't necessarily affected by any type of tariff talk, and and clearly a, a Southwest Airlines doesn't have much international exposure, U.S. revenues um, that benefits when it's, when the dollar's strong, right. things like that just start to get really appealing as an offset to some of the Adobe's and the Amazons and the Microsofts and the you know, the, those tech names that are doing really well. Eric, remind me, though, because the funds that you manage, right, you guys try to stick to kind of a smaller universe of stocks, right? From Is it 25 to 50 or something like that? Well, yeah, we'll, we, the, we will buy in the fund 25 to 50 stocks. We're, we're at, at the upper end of that range now okay. because of the opportunities that we see. Um, and, but, but we pick from the 200 companies that are within our brand's index, so that's kind of the investment universe, 200 of the most relevant, most recognizable brands serving that consumer spending theme. I got to ask you, you got Netflix in there too, right? Have you pared back? I mean, 115% higher. Uh, you pared sold back. It. You sold it. Okay. Because I'm looking <laughs> and at. I love Netflix. Okay. But, I, but it just had. At some it, point, what, why did you sell it? Just because of the run? Simply because they have woken up everybody in the industry. And I just think it gets less good. You know, it, it gets. Uh, a little bit less easy going forward because everybody's chasing you. And, and some of the media companies are really intriguing. We haven't really pulled the, tr- the trigger just yet yeah. on some of these names. But um, it's just it, it's, it, the expectations are so high going into earnings. And it was a small position anyway. We had a great return. Right. It was just time to move on. And, right. you know, with any luck, they'll miss and stock will go down <laughs> and I'll get a chance to buy it back. You got to be quick. 20 seconds. You got J.P. Morgan. I think Goldman Sachs. I think you still have them in your portfolio. We've got the bank earnings. You're going to hold on to them. What are you looking for? Very quickly. No, we only have one. I okay. can't talk about which one because it's new. Okay. But we just don't have to, There's too many opportunities outside of the bank world to, to jump into the bank. So although. Yeah. Technically, all of them look pretty oversold and ready for a bounce into earnings. Wow, you really have made some changes in the portfolio because I've been looking at the holdings as of the end of April. So really some changes. Eric, thank you so much. Have a great uh, evening. Eric Clark, Portfolio Manager at AccuVest Global Advisors, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.